Välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Farrosad och vi är programansvariga för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni föra författaren Nathalie Dias i samtal med Jennifer Hayashida. Varmt välkomna. Far tog en zebra med sig hem från Sinaloa. Det här, djur, det här huset är en djurpark, grät min mor. Aj, men den här vidunderliga varelsen är till dig, min vida, sa han. Du ger mig bara odjur, snörvlade hon och kastade sig upp på zebrans krökta, beniga rygg. Hon brast ut i en Colorado-flod av tårar. Så mycket vatten att zebrans länder löstes upp och bildade pölar kring hovarna som fyra pryglade fångar. Aj, ser du kött min far, du har ju förstört den. Amor, det är ingen zebra, det är en burro målad som en zebra. Men var inte ledsen, odjuren är inga odjur. De är bara våra barn målade som hygienor. Vi visste bättre. Min mor hade gråtit i hundra år och under tiden hade våra diaboliska munnar blivit rödare, våra pärlformade ögon mörkare och våra våta tänder ännu längre. Ansikten hon inte kunde skrubba bort från våra huvuden, svansar som växte ut igen. Med hundra år följer visdom och min mor hade rätt. Vi är en djurpark. Och inte ens våra föräldrar slipper inträdesavgiften. De betalar för att se oss äta elborra. Min far faller på knä som en man som just förlorat sin zebra. Min mor målar ett tunt grått galler på sin hud och sträcker sig efter oss. Hej! Välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Athena Farrosad och är ansvarig för litteraturen här på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern tillsammans med Ida Linde. Vad underbart att ni är här ikväll. Det ni just hörde mig läsa var en dikt ur Natalie Dias otroliga diktsamling När min bror var astek. Den kom 2012 i USA och 2020. I Sverige i översättning av Adam Westman och mig. Eh, Nareli har också gett ut boken Postcolonial Love Poems som kom för tre år sedan. Eh, en lika fantastisk bok. Och ikväll är hon här. Eh, en otrolig sak. Eh, faktiskt hela vägen från USA och hon kommer att prata med Ingen mindre än Jennifer Hayashida. Och samtalet pågår i en timme ungefär. Och efteråt så blir det bokförsäljning och signering. Man får gärna stänga av sina mobiltelefoner om man inte har gjort det. Nu kör vi! Welcome Natalie and Jennifer. We sit down. Okay. Mm. 
this. We can settle in first. I'm gonna pour you some water. Hey. Hello. <laughs> We're just gonna take a second to get used to the bright light. Uh, I don't understand how to read that clock at all. There's a count up to something. Something's gonna happen in two seconds. Oh, the five became a six. But why is it 19 minutes? I thought we had an hour. <laughs> Sorry. Help. Um, Just leave as you get bored or when you feel like we've done enough, feel free to Yeah, because we have no time. Um, anyway. Um, so I was going to ask you to open up the evening by reading a few poems from when my brother was an Aztec. Yes, gracias. Iwanja hotank ivak idum, Natalie imuik, hakulo imanj, amich tanum. Me estoy alegre de estar aquí con todos ustedes. Y gracias por venir, y gracias a Tina, and Jen, and Kultur Huset. Um, yeah, and all of you for being here as well. So it's really lucky, um, yeah, to be with you all. So I, I was going to read two, two poems just to arrive here with you. Um, this is a pantoum for any of you who are interested in form. It's a broken pantoum. So all the forms I write are broken forms uh, because they weren't forms not uh, designed with me in mind to, to be a poet, to have wonders and tendernesses. And so... Um, if they're especially European forms, I always break them. Uh, as, as good as I can, I'll break them. Uh, my brother at 3 a.m. He sat cross-legged, weeping on the steps when mom unlocked and opened the front door. Oh God, he said, oh God, he wants to kill me, mom. When mom unlocked and opened the front door at 3 a.m., she was in her nightgown. Dad was asleep. He wants to kill me, he told her, looking over his shoulder. 3 a.m. and in her nightgown, dad asleep. What's going on, she asked. Who wants to kill you? He looked over his shoulder. The devil does. Look at him over there. She asked, what are you on? Who wants to kill you? The sky wasn't black or blue, but the green of a dying night. The devil, look at him, over there. He pointed to the corner house. The sky wasn't black or blue, but the dying green of night. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. My brother pointed to the corner house. His lips flickered with sores. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. Oh God, I can see the tail, he said. Oh God, look. Mom winced at the sores on his lips. It's sticking out from behind the house. Oh God, see the tail, he said. Look at the goddamned tail. He sat cross-legged, weeping on the front steps. Mom finally saw it, a hellish vision, my brother. Oh God, 
Oh God, she said. I don't know if any of you write about family, but there's always something right about when we're writing about family that, you know, I could tell you the truth, but you wouldn't believe me. So you always have to put some imagination into it to make people, um, you know, be able to be alongside you. And then I'm going to read this. Um, so my sky is very different than you all's sky. It's a very always blue, you know, it, it, sometimes in monsoon season it's a little gray, but big clouds. And so we do a lot of cloud watching. And I wrote this poem with my niece. We were uh, out in my backyard and we were looking at the clouds. And, you know, I was thinking about some of the things she said and thinking about her future and where we were on the reservation. And this poem came about after that. Cloud watching. Betsy Ross needled hot stars to Mr. Washington's bedspread. They weren't hers to give. So when the cavalry came, we ate their horses. Then, unfortunately, our bellies were filled with bullet holes. Pack the suitcases with white cans of corned beef. When we leave, our hunger will go with us, following behind a dog with ribs like a harp. Blue gourds glow and rattle like a two-man band. Hotchkiss on backup vocals and gatling on drums. The rhythm is set by our boys dancing the warpath. The meth three-step. Grandmothers dance their legs off. Who now will teach us to stand? We carry dimming lamps like god cages. They help us to see that it is dark. In the dark our hands pretend to pray but really make love. Soon we'll give birth to fists. They'll open up black eyes and split grins. We'll all cry out. History has chapped lips, unkissable lips. He gave me a coral necklace that shines bright as a chokehold. He gives and gives. Census names given to Mojaves. George and Martha Washington. Abraham Lincoln. Robin Hood. Rip Van Winkle. Loot bag ghosts float fatly in dark museum corners. I see my grandfather's flutes and rabbit sticks in their guts. About the beautiful dresses emptied of breasts. They were nothing compared to the emptied bodies. Splintering cradleboards sing bone lullabies. They hush the mention of half-breed babies buried or left on riverbanks. When you ask about officers who chased our screaming women into the arrowweeds, they only hum. A tongue will wrestle its mouth to death and lose. Language is a cemetery. Tribal dentists light lab coat pyres in memoriam of lost molars. Our cavities are larger than HUD houses. Some Indians' wisdom teeth never stop growing back in. We were made to bite back until we learn to bite first. Thank you so much. Um, there's a lot of like language particular to natives in the US government there, so. We can talk yeah. about that a little bit later, maybe. Um, so I'm gonna ask a sort of standard question just to warm up, I guess, um, which has to do with how this book from 2012 came into being and the sort of paths in your life 
that led to its existence, um, with an emphasis, I guess, on multiple paths. Yeah, I mean, I so I grew up on a reservation, um, and you know, we don't even have a word in my language for poetry, um, because I, I think, at least the way that I've come to know poetry. Um, in relationship to like whatever standardized languages, right? Like even when we translate things, it's being translated from what someone thought was a standardized language to what someone else thinks is, um, or a majority, minority relationship. Um, but we didn't have a word for poetry, but we have an understanding of language that it is a physical power. Mm -hmm. You know, so it it's not, um, you know, like you have to be very careful with what you say because once you say it, not only can you not unsay it, but it is now moving in the world. You, you know, you can hurt people is, is something we say, even to say like, don't speak badly about someone too much because uh, there's an energy there that will occur. Um, and so there's a real intentionality that I grew up with, with the storytellers in my family and community. And that's a, originally how I came to poetry was, I imagined it as, a way of storytelling with intention, uh, with possibility, with wonder. And I, I, what I find in, in poetry, and I think what helped me write this book, is, um, is the ability to hold what is pain and love, grief and pleasure. Um, and, and this first book is a lot of that. You know, right. I, I wrote this away from the reservation, so I was... Uh, you know, I had gone to undergrad. I was an athlete there, so I was a basketball player first. I'd actually come to Sweden before I wrote this. So I, lived, I had lived in Malmö for a year, um, playing that top-notch basketball that they play in Malmö. <laughs> 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 um, but I played basketball there for a year. The funnest time of my life, but uh, uh, basketball was, you know, was okay, but I had the most fun ever. Um, but then I went back to graduate school. I blew my knee out, went back to graduate school, and... Um, that's when I started really writing uh, poetry. And so you had not written before that? No, not really. And I, I, I read a lot. But, but you had an inkling. Yeah, I, I, of story. So right. it's still for me, like that's why this first book is so narrative. Mm -hmm. And the second book is, is less narrative. Um, but, but yeah, so I ended up kind of like, you know, there was a calm in and what I normally did to engage the world, which was basketball. So that's right. how I physically dealt with the world was basketball. I, I was never stressed or depressed when I played basketball because there was like, I was always up against the edge of things. And then I had this time of not playing basketball and it's like, wait, this world is so difficult and troubled. And so it was language that kind of brought me back to engaging with the world. So a lot of these poems are me making questions of why why the life I knew was so different from the life I was becoming mm -hmm. within, you mm -hmm. know, which was the non-reservation life and in the United States of all places and after having traveled, you know, through Europe and Asia for so long. Um, yeah, and so it just became, it became like a way for me to think through um, what was normal at home, but what I was realizing was not normal. Right, um, and yet with the same, I, th I feel like with the same values of language and story that I learned at home. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of a, a space of real complexity, but wonder, you know. 
I guess my question then is sort of, if poetry was this tool for you in that passage from sort of one life to another, not to say that they're like that delineated, but like how is poetry for you a way to sort of remember or be in motion or sort of think about past and present and future in terms of what you're describing in your own experience as like basketball taking you from the reservation not only to Malba, but to other places as well. And then, you know, the onward movement into poetry from there. Yeah. Um, are, are there any basketball players in the audience? Yeah. <laughs> How about, like, football or soccer? You might get hockey. Handball. Ho- hockey's, <laughs> hockey's similar. How about athletes? We'll just put our hand up. Athletes, yeah. Tough um, crowd. <laughs> yeah. Or, or are there, like, any... Anybody into like math? <laughs> okay, now you're just ready to work whatever you can. Well, no, but I, I guess what I mean is is that there's something about the spatial temporal mm-hmm. that breaks down in poetry, right. which I think allows things to be possible. Um, I found it through basketball, and it it's interesting to me that I th- what basketball offered me. I think is very similar to what poetry has offered me, and it's a space of futurity. Um, so basketball, for example, is always, I think of it as one of a few sports that are games of the future, right? Because you don't ever guard the person right in front of you or the ball. You, you guard where they might go next, mm-hmm. but more importantly, you guard where they don't even know is possible yet for them to go. So you're always thinking in this, I think of futurity as a space of, of becoming and possibility versus like an arrival point. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what poetry offers me is that I, it's a place where I don't have to know and I can be all of the things I am. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's such an interesting thing. Even the very act of writing to me feels so, um, it's such, it's such a mysterious relationship. I think of desire and wonder mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how many of you just only write on the computer, but I like to write longhand. Like my notebook is probably the, the most important part of my writing process is that I keep a notebook and I can carry it with me at any point in time. So I don't write every day. I don't write at the same time every day, but I'm always carrying a notebook. Um, but even as you're writing, right? Like you write and how, like, isn't it so weird that you start writing and you have no idea what's going to happen at the end of the sentence and yet it happens. And I, I feel like that is a lot of this, the physical power of mm-hmm. language, you know, and that, you know, you, you're thinking with all of the things you know, but what's most important about what you know is what you don't know yet. And there's a complexity that I think poetry above all other uh, form slash genre can hold of that complexity of, of, of the unknown, um, you know, and like I, the way that I view poetry is that I always want like the last line to be the beginning of what you think of next or mm-hmm. what could happen next, um, which I know is a little bit different than, you know, um, some writers like, like Ada's coming and Ada has a very, Ada's very good at, uh, ending poems. So you feel the ending of them. Um, and I like to think of them as like opening back up again. Like a proposition at the yeah, end. Yeah, like the, you know, I've arrived here, but this is, on, the, the poem is the least of it, I guess, is something mm-hmm. I think about, mm-hmm. of what, 
when poetry happens, it happens after the poem in a mm. lot of ways, um, which I think is kind of how basketball happens, but I also think it's kind of how imagination happens. Mm -hmm. You know, we think we see it up ahead, but you, you don't. You're kind of looking back at it as it's happening, which is a very strange concept. Right. I guess then, so how do you think of it in terms of then, because a large part of um, both books in many ways, but the second book in particular, which you will get to read in translation in the future, um, but how, how do you engage with what is already known in terms of um, history and the, the sort of fate of particular bodies you know, under the sort of regime of the U.S. nation-state in this case? Like, how do you then take the sort of unknowability or anticipatory part of what you just described so beautifully in terms of basketball and turn that back onto something that you know has happened and is a kind of fact that you then, in your work... Um, bite back against in many ways. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, both in terms of the sort of personal history that you engage with in the first book, um, but also how you sort of gradually in that book also move towards um, the sort of officially, or official writing of history and the sort of errors and omissions of that history. That question sort of makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think it makes sense. We're actually seeing it, right? Like, I think it right. makes sense in relationship right now to thinking of uh, Israel as a nation state and the way that uh, truth works there, the U.S., and the way truth works here, or even like world media, global media, the way right. truth works there. We're kind of seeing things in real time where, like, this is the official truth, which we realize how very quickly truth becomes a, a history, mm -hmm. which we've been taught history is what happened. Right. Um, I think for me in particular, I've learned, you know, we talked a little bit about this in, in Oslo, but I actually learned from like Norse myths <laughs> because I, I used to read a lot. And so um, I, all I did when I was little is like play basketball and read. And my, I have a really big family. My siblings to this day, don't let me live, live it down that I did no chores. Because like I would do them so poorly that my mom would be like, you know what, just put the potatoes down and get in there and just pick up, a, go read a book. Oh, like learn helplessness. <laughs> yes, like, and so like I would just peel the potatoes so badly. Like I take like half the potato I'm off. So and my kids aren't here. Fling it across the, the <laughs> counter. And, you know, or I would sweep so badly that my mom would be like, just go outside and play basketball. Because like I stayed out of her hair. And so... Um, so I was just, all I did was read and play basketball. So what I would do is like the library, there were two places that had air conditioning in town, which was the, li the library. It's a very tiny library. It's even tinier now that I go back as an adult, but this very tiny library. And next to it was uh, the basketball gym. So library opened up earlier, so I would go there until the basketball gym opened. Then I would go to the basketball gym. And then mm -hmm. when it closed for lunch, I'd go back to the library and then... Uh, when the gym opened, I just went back and forth all day, but I read like anything I could get my hands on, but they had those like, 
I don't know, it's like DLR or something, Norse mythology. Oh, all with of the fancy script on yeah, the Yeah, and like yeah, all of yeah, these yeah, yeah. beautiful pictures, or at least when I was little, I thought they were beautiful. Um, but they're, And they were huge. They were right. like big books, so you felt kind of important opening one, right? And like not quite as dangerous as the Bible, which you didn't have any pictures, so you like didn't open that one. But these were giant books. And so it, there was something that I learned at that age, and I, I mean, I was young, I was like between like eight and 10 that, wait a minute, like these stories, these mythologies right. are as exciting and wild and possible as the way the stories I've learned about my mountains and my mm-hmm. river. And yet what I'm learning in school about who I am, which is what they call history, like it just like flipped, completely flipped that for me. So I immediately realized like the the kind of like red flag of the word history and then this kind of portal of the word mythology. Like mm-hmm. when I heard mythology, I suddenly realized like, oh, this is where things actually happen. Right. Um, and like where they're in motion still. Yeah, where they're in motion and where things can shift and change. Because, you know, I grew up in a culture very devoted and um, committed to storytelling. And depending on who told the story it slightly shifted, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I had such a big family that we could all witness the exact same thing. And my mom would be like, well, what really happened? And we'd all have a different story of Mm -hmm. what actually happened. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I wrote this book, um, my press sent me two copies um, before anybody else gets them. Mm -hmm. And um, I gave one to my little brother who is on the cover because his I was saying this earlier, his kids believe that this is his book. So he actually used to sign these books and give them to his friends as if it was his. And his kids would always say, that's dad's book, because he's on the cover. Um, But when I first got this book, uh, my whole family was at my brother's house, which is a small town. He lived a few houses down. And I saw all their cars there, but nobody called me. Nobody came to my house. But they all gathered there, and apparently they passed the book around. And... They, they didn't read out loud. They each just read books. And I started about 10.30, and my family drinks a lot, so about 10.30 is when they start really perking up. So I got like a, a text from my sister, and she was like, you know, is that poem about me? <laughs> and, you know, I just, I didn't answer. And then, you know, my little brother, the youngest boy in my family, wrote and was like, because uh, he read the No More Cake Here is a poem in the book, and he's like, uh, did you mean you wish Richie was dead? Which, like, I had never thought of. And he said, that's, like, fucked up. And he doesn't spell very well, but it's like FKD, that's mm-hmm. fucked up. That's all I heard from him. And then the next day, um, and I already was feeling weird, because, like, I had just put the book on my coffee table and stepped away, because it's mm-hmm. weird to have a book. Um, but the next morning, about nine, my mother and my youngest sister came over, and my mom like came in, couldn't quite sit still, was like nervous, anxious. And I was like, mom, like, you know, what's in you? Like, why don't you just tell me what's in you? Clearly you're, you're bothered by something. And she's like, well, it's just, and this is almost verbatim what she said. She's like, well, it's just that that's not the way it happened. And I don't know what she was talking about in the book. And my little sister who was with her immediately said in defense, like, but in defense of herself almost, not of me or the book, but said, what do you mean, mom? That's exactly how it happened. And so you, I, it kind of just showed me like, mm-hmm. the, like how important emotion 
is, like your emotional experience and your bodily experience and what, mm-hmm. what remains of the body after something has happened right. or how you carry it that really determines what happened, you know? And so I think there's just been this constant relationship of like knowing history is not for me. Right. And then finding other way, like mythology or story or, you know, in my case, poetry, that mm-hmm. were a place where possibility and that becoming um, is always in motion or in a kind of momentum. But also thinking about that example that almost the point of history is almost that it is contested, that it is about that sort of multitude of experiences or interpretations or memories of memories, and that that is that history isn't about like reconciling, like you were saying earlier about the the sort of media representations of what's happening in Palestine. It's like it isn't about reconciling into one truth. It's about engaging with the sort of multitude of interpretations and those all being real kind of simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, not to say that there aren't Well, and on numerous that planes surface. of time, right. I think that's like the cyclical part that mm-hmm. feels so important when like history tries so, histories try so hard to be on that little timeline, mm-hmm. you know, the trajectory versus the constellation of planes, mm-hmm. I guess. Which is why I said math, if anyone's into math. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at math, but I wish... I, I love the concepts of it, so... Yeah, the concepts are generally easier than the actual doing of it, <laughs> yeah. in my experience, at least. Um, I guess when you were saying, you know, about putting the book on your coffee table and sort of backing away, is it the book... Um, because I'm just thinking also about, you know, I'm a translator and so I think a lot about what loyalty actually means and fidelity and, you know, I have, I have huge problems with those terms. And so I guess my question to you in terms of um, the first book is also about how you think about betrayal and loyalty. Because to me, there's, they're sort of one and the same in some ways that betrayal can be a form of sort of intense loyalty to yeah. the word or to the experience or to, you know, the project of the family or the family history or the nation, et cetera, that it requires betrayal yeah. in order, um, I don't know, in order for you to be in relation with it, you need to betray it. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about betrayal. Yeah, I mean, I like thinking about Betrayal next to relation mm-hmm. and relationship. Um, because I think relationality has a certain kind of reciprocity that might encompass or might include something like betrayal, mm-hmm. but that betrayal doesn't consume. And I, th- I feel like betrayal, at least like in the English sense, it has like a... It has a certain, I think, a power structure that, I mean, feeds the state always, right? It, right. It, it's always. a little too close to law for me in our like current usages of it. Um, but I think I think about this a lot, especially because I, I mean, I made some clear choices between the first book and the second book based on I I know a lot of people read the first book and think mostly about the darknesses or the pains of it, and yet. 
I felt an immense amount of love writing mm-hmm. the book. Um, and by no means do I think love is easy, right? Like, I think my brother is probably one of the hardest people I've ever had to love. I, I do a pretty poor job of it, I think, in real life sometimes because it's so difficult for me. And yet, somehow, I managed to love him probably better than I ever have in the book. And, and some of that was simply, in, in relationship to betrayal, some of that was simply by refusing to look away from him. You know, I think that's like, there's like, we, we mentioned this a bit, uh, Athena and I, I always like caution my students when they're like, I want to make the ugly beautiful. That's what my poetry is supposed to do. And like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with whatever we think ugly is. It, it usually has more to do with our emotions than anything, or it has to do with power structures that have been like drummed into us that we can't quite break free from. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know what like the ugly is, right. you know. It it's either something that hurts you or something you've been taught to be afraid of, or um, and so for me the 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 part that feels relational and feels larger than something like betrayal is just the love that keeps you looking, the love that won't let you turn your head. You know, it'd be easy to look away from my brother in real life. I mean, I I have a real life brother. His name is Richie. Um, He becomes the brother in a lot of the poems. And if I feel like the worst thing I could do would be to look away from him, to not not try to find the language for the pain, which includes the love Mm -hmm. I feel for him. And sometimes the words are as close as I get to love. I mean, we always talk about how words are inadequate, but they're also an energy. They're mm-hmm. also a physicality. I think words are a type of touch. I think, you know, like I've said this before, but they're not the body, but they are an estimation of my body to another body, toward another body. And so in some ways, like, I feel like my words can hold a lover, a brother, a stranger an enemy um, in much more abundant and generous ways than I can with like this body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I, th- I think about that a lot and especially because I was dealing with his addiction, my real life brother's addiction and mental health and I think people have a lot of feelings about that, about do you How have the permission or the right, right to say that and... For me, I, f- I feel like story is the way we love each other. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as like people are telling me this is the history of natives in the United States because we're patriots and we love the United States, I'm like, wait a minute, Sorry. this is a story of my brother who I love and who is very, very difficult to love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I think that there's a practice of story that I bring to poetry um, that is a practice of the way I see the world or carry my beloveds or my strangers in the world. Um, yeah, but it's, I really appreciate that question because I think I, I want to think a lot more about like betrayal and relationality. I just think betrayal has a bad rap in yeah. terms of... How could it, you not betray? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's the thing. It's like an inevitable thing. It's sort of like what you were saying... Um, about say like this sort of is it a truism? It's not a truism when people say that words are inadequate. Like 
what is the actual proposition if we say, well, what if they are adequate? What if they yeah. actually are things that do things in the world? Then what are the ethics or what is the responsibility we have? Because I think there's something really interesting in what you're saying about the sort of, um, well, the energy or the, the sharpness of wording and taking that seriously, you know. But I kind of want to go back to what you were saying earlier um, when you first read about when you were talking to folks here about um, veracity or like truth. And I guess I want to sort of build on what you just said in terms of um, what some people have, some people, I don't know who those people are, what... I hate talking about critics, but like <laughs> this idea that there's magic or there's magical realism or there's surrealism. And I, I want to, I want to sort of air this idea that I have that the surreal isn't necessarily, um, what you describe the surreal is like the structure that surrounds like the reservation, the state, the prison, like those are the things that in some ways are surreal and I, I kind of want to suggest that this is like hyper-realism in a way because nothing here seems impossible to me. Like ranging from the arc and the plastic bag and the frame. Like there's nothing here that seems impossible or seems surreal or magical. And I don't mean that as a critique. I mean that as a like, commentary on reality somehow that reality sort of pushes these kinds of um, experience forward yeah and i i mean i guess we could i mean is the ark is a crazy story the right? ark is like a crazy that's story. a little bit absurd i also love the sort of the sacred and the profane <laughs> yeah. sort of doing battle yeah and it's like we brought two of each kind yes. of animal like yeah the whole ark thing it never really flew with me <laughs> but um you're like this far but no further <laughs> yeah I'm like I'm into water but I don't know about the arc um I mean I guess like but language could be hyper real right yeah I mean because it's not us mm. and it's not a reality until we we make it and it's somehow beyond like surrealism you know the kind of like beyond whatever is real mm -hmm. and I, I think that's like something that's interesting when we think about like knowledge or the imagination, you know, like we kind of think of knowledge as being a known and a static of sorts, or even like understanding. I don't believe a ton in understanding. Like I think that not a lot happens when we understand each other. It's somehow in the gap of what we think we're understanding mm -hmm. of one another that the true relationality happens, right? right? right. And that to me is like that, that tension of, of I think what life is about or being alongside is about. It's that, and this is why I think like surrealism, hyperrealism, they're so subjective, mm -hmm. and they're really based on the images that that you know how to build the world with or engage the world with. So like my images come from the desert, which is the kind of the way I read almost everything, mm -hmm. everything I do. Then that translates into basketball or or now like you know, uh, poetry. Like, the fact that I'm so interested in etymology, for example, mm -hmm, right. it, it feels like the desert where you can just see as far back as something is. Like, the storm is 
you know, half a day off. Mm -hmm. And you can just slowly watch it come in and you watch all the trees get ready for it. Like they act literally tilt toward it or their leaves will shift. Or as a storm has passed, like within a matter of minutes, how green things become because mm -hmm. they know, you know. And, and so for me, there's something about, um, yeah, like just kind of thinking about uh, the hyper real or this kind of like perspective of uh, like making sure it stays in momentum. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the thing I, I find um, a good tension and a creative kind of tension. Like mm -hmm. I believe in tension. Mm -hmm. Like I think that that's what creativity is, is it's tension. But I guess that's the thing that I'm so fascinated by both here and especially in post-colonial love poem, how you create that kind of tension between, um, or I don't want to say between, I, I want to find another preposition. You're <laughs> um, talking about prepositions. Yeah, t tension together with, I don't know, in terms of like the state and the history of the state and the historical and contemporary structures of the state, and then this like poetic force, but they're not oppositional necessarily because like the structures of the state invite the kind of um, sorry the kind of sort of dynamics or imaginatory sort of. Um, language of imaginative is the word I'm looking for imaginative language of the poems and it's like they exist in this sort of circuit because I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is like the, rigid, the rigidity of the state and the history of eradication and erasure and the reservation and how that sort of sets the scene in some place in some ways for these kinds of um, imaginative but also to me very real stories that you've described as a kind of technology as well which I think is so beautiful because I th think we tend to romanticize the story and yeah. I think here these like wild stories are like to me it's so clear that they are a kind of technology they're instruments yeah and they're just another type of body right like I think I think about like architecture mm -hmm. I, I really I like to read a lot of a lot of architects are poets as well so if you ever get a chance to like look through architects papers like I, I really am it's like where a lot of my reading happens mm -hmm. in, in architects. Um, but I think about, right, like there, there's, a, there's a, um, an architect named Elias Torres. And he has a, it was his thesis project at, or his dissertation at Princeton. And it was called Zenithal Light. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a book, it's just really hard to get your hands on a book, but you can easily get the, uh, the dissertation from Princeton. But he's, I mean, architecture, right? It's designed to move a body. Right. It, so it's, it's designed with a control in mind of what the body can do there. And yet the body's imagination can, can work against that or mm -hmm. even through it. But he has a line that I, I used in a poem and, uh, because he's, it's zenithal light, so he's thinking of all these lights that come down from the top and using all these buildings. But one of the things he says is, um, 
the window, like the importance of the window and the window being high up on the zenith is that it lets the outside participate. Right. And so that that's become kind of like a, an important thing for me about form and structure is that, you know, the line in the poem is a, a good window lets the outside participate. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that in relationship to these structures. Mm-hmm. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean they're not structures, right? Or that No, and it doesn't mean there's not power. Yeah, and like, I think another way I think of like, so light, how light moves feels very important, which is why the second book is just infused with right. light. But also how water moves, right? It can be, it's weaponized. We're seeing it weaponized now. It's weaponized in my desert and will continue to be. Uh, my river is the most endangered river in the United States, the Colorado. But it also, it will defy any structure mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it, the ri- rivers jump banks, rivers flood, rivers overflow, rivers even like choke themselves off and right. like deviate. And yeah, so I, I guess I think about about that, um, back to like the physical energies of whether it's water or land or, or our imaginations, which I do believe is like the energy of language too, is that this, we think we're inside the structure, but I think if we can build practices Mm -hmm. that feel abundant, because I think the state obviously doesn't want us to feel abundant. It needs that it's abundance to come from the structure itself. But if we can, find practices of that wildness and that wild abundance, I think then we realize how small the structure is inside of that. And and that's how I, what I think poetry offers me. It's mm-hmm. almost like not quite an inside out, so you're not turning something inside out, but you're moving like well beyond it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, um, and, and you're moving beyond it, but you know it began long before you as right. well. So I think there's something again, about the temporal spatial of like w- when you feel small in language and when you realize how large language is beyond you. Um, Can we take that into your... Because I'm looking at the clock that I've now learned how to read, um, <laughs> which is a big step for this evening. Um, but can we take what you just said and think about it beyond English? And would you mind talking a little bit about the language preservation work that you've been doing for the past decade or so? Yeah. Formally, I guess, for the past decade. But yeah. if you want to describe that a little bit. Um, um, because I feel like it extends from what you just said as well. Yeah. Uh, who, who in here speaks a language beyond Swedish and English? And does anybody consider the language they speak to be an indigenous language? Yeah. Are there any like Sami or Svensk folks? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what's really interesting to me is like, I, when, when, you're, when you know that you are a, of a native language or an indigenous language, in some ways I think of it as a, a gift, like a luxury, even though of course we know it's, marginalized, minor, all these words that tell us the state of the language, but it's a real gift to, I feel like it's a gift that I have the belief or the knowing that my language came from the land and the water. And that's like, I think a relationship that 
that allows me to endure whatever the state can imagine, because it didn't imagine us. No. Our languages can't be used to imagine the state because they don't do the things the state does. They, they aren't as anti-life as the English language. And also, my native language is much older. Mm. And like the, the US English language is so young and naive and, and dumb in a lot of ways, right? It, it, it refuses to learn, it's stubborn, it's kind of bratty. It's also a beautiful language, and there are native lexicons woven through it, woven into it, you know? So I do think like the English language will eventually be more possible um, in relationship to the world we might imagine living in. I, I don't think it's able to yet. No. Um, it, it feels so, um, I, I'll just say young. Um, but, <laughs> it's very <laughs> diplomatic. Yeah, I was like, I could just go on and on. But I, I feel like there's something about... Um, I'll use the word, uh, th there's two phrases that I, that I feel really, that feel important to me and the way I've been thinking the last few years. And one is, is the phrase of consequence. And so it's really important to me that I know I am of consequence to who's around me and that the people around me know they are of consequence to me. Um, that's easy for me because I grew up on a reservation where my neighbors are my family. And, and nothing you do on the reservation gets beyond the edges. So you could think you, you did something at home and your mom's looking for you and someone on the edge of the res, the last house, will be like, hey, little girl, get over here. <laughs> you know. And, and so there's something ab about growing up in that way where just as a human body, you realize that what you do is of consequence to other people. From something as small as putting your trash on the, on the street. Or, um, again, like the language you speak, what you say, because we were taught not to think bad because you could actually hurt somebody. Right. And, and that's how close that community is. Um, and I think people are missing that. I don't think the majority of people in our world feel that they are of consequence to anybody or to anything, and, and I think it's a huge responsibility, but I also think it's the only way we might live with the next word, is, which is alongside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot about uh, my father is Catholic, and my mother is uh, Mojave and Atom. So we don't, we have a, mixture of everything in my house and like that that's like a, a small example of what I mean by alongside like there mm. never needs to be an agreement between right. the two and in some ways we navigate the world like my father would joke and say like yeah I could I definitely know like how bad it was whatever you did by which side you're choosing because if it's pretty right. bad you're probably going to go the Mojave route because the Catholic <laughs> side will be a little harder on you you know but but I, but I think those those are like two things I think a lot about. Um, and how do you think that learning? Well, both. I don't love the word preserving. So, but how do you think activating or um, aliving uh, Mojave and encouraging young people to learn it and use it is part of this these ideas 
regarding being of consequence alongside being in motion, how yeah. to engage with history and the state and the worlding that we can do through language. Like, yeah. How is Mojave a part of that to you? Well, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, it's knowledge for one, mm. right? And it's a knowledge that, it's an early knowledge before the state. So it's, right. a, it's very much a life-giving, life-thriving, yet not afraid of death knowledge. Whereas the U.S. is very anti-life and afraid of death knowledge. So, you know, we don't mind delivering death upon others, but we don't want it for ourselves. So you have no language built around death and dying, right. you know. It, it can't be a beautiful transition. It can't be a thing you learn from and move toward with a kind of grace or generosity, um, you know, which means our griefs, our griefs become unbearable mm -hmm. and the state needs those, you know, especially if they inflict the grief, they need them to become unbearable for us so that we become broken or we become... Weaker. Weaker, you know, or we believe we are, right? Right. Yeah. And well, because we're alone in it too. Yeah, and it's, and like, the Mojave language, it seems small because it's about, um, you have to know like the condition and, and context. I would say condition before I would say context because I think context is a little bit too much about knowing and, and understanding the meaning, like pinning mm -hmm. something down. Um, but Mojave is a little bit unpinnable. That's like another word that's been important to me. But because you can, you can talk about something and you wouldn't know if you're talking about land or water or body. And you could, you know, you might think you're, you pop in on a conversation and this person is in pain and you're actually talking about the mountain. Right. You know, uh, we, we have a, a mountain who cried. There's a story of Imich and we can see it. Like I can see mm -hmm. it from the road. That's the mountain who cried. Like the grief was so strong that the mountain wept and is still the color of its weeping. Um, and, and like... Those might seem like folk tales or mythologies, but they're actual practices of, of living. Mm -hmm. um, and they're in motion, going back to what you were saying earlier about the relationship between myth and history. Yeah, like, and that spatial temporal pressure that mm -hmm. is constantly put on, like that, that, that when you're looking back is, is actually how you become in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's, there's no real like time structure there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that feels really important. And, and I mean, you know, there's all these statistics that we could, like scientifically, right, like over 80% of the biodiversity in the United States is in the care or under the tender of, of indigenous peoples, right. meaning they're the ones caretaking that land. And a lot of that reason is because it stayed, quote, reservation or native land and therefore couldn't be developed. And so it's just not developed yet kind of thing. But I mean, for me, the bringing back the, the Mojave language is because I, I think it's not, just, um, it's not just a language or a way to say who we are, but I think it, it's telling you about our relationship with the land and mm -hmm. the way the land um, should be tended and needs to be tended. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a kind of a collectiveness in Mojave culture that I think includes you, or mm -hmm. I think includes you. It doesn't feel like a thing that's shut out to everybody, but mm -hmm. Mojave's. Right. Um, yeah, and and it's also it's also been like one of the most difficult things I I've ever done. Like I, 
especially like having played basketball, like where winning and losing is very clear cut. It, it's a very, for any of you who work in language, right? Or whether you're learning another language or, or trying, having a hard time learning a language, like it's such a hard thing to face when you realize that like for everything you win of the language, you've lost so much right. more. You know, like my elder told me one day, and I, I lost my elder last year, so I, I no longer have my teacher. I just have what I have learned from right. him and from my others. But he was, real, he was a real funny guy, but he was like, hey, like, remember when you came here the very first time? He's like, you didn't know anything, you know? And he's, he's, he's hilarious. But, and I was like, yeah. And he's like, look, you started right here, and look, look how far you've come. You're like, right here. You know, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. And he's like, yeah, but but look how far you have to go. <laughs> so put me back in my place, like didn't even like, yeah, you know, but look at all you don't know yet. So it's, a, it's, a, it, it's something like, I think it's also a, a lesson about becoming because it, in some ways, yes, it's about my Mojave language or whatever your language is or the language you're trying to learn or recover or find your way back to, but it's also about something much bigger than the language, mm-hmm. which is like, the, the values of collectivity or alongsideness or being of consequence to one another, which I do not believe English has the capacity for yet. Right. I think it has to go through a lot more turmoil, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. usually the turmoil is at the hands of us. So, um, but I think it has, it needs a much greater capacity. Um, yeah. I want to sort of wrap up by talking a little bit about post-colonial love poem um, and relating it back to what you've been talking about in terms of English. Because my feeling, and this is just my totally subjective reading of the book, is that it does take on um, sort of institutional English in terms of how indigenous populations have been sort of memorialized or made relics of colonialism when in fact colonialism is very much a thing of the present. And um, I guess I'd, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit, which I understand is almost impossible given that we have only a few minutes left, but to just talk a little bit about um, how you engage with these official scripts of belonging or not belonging, erasure, and visibility in this book. And then if you wouldn't mind reading just a little bit from this magnificent, the first water is the body in the middle. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I mean, I think some of that comes from from Mojave, which again, like, you know, it, an easy example is that our word for east is uh, anyak, because that's where the sun rises. Our word for sun is anya, uh, and then that's what makes light happen. So our word for light is anya, and it's light in the day. So our word for day is anya, and then our word for hour, which wasn't our word, but is anya, uh, from a watch to a clock, anya. Uh, electricity is um, anyako oren, the light that comes from the metal. Um, uh, our word for bullet you know, that, that they all come from the same word. And, and so that might seem like a smallness, but it's actually a huge abundance because so much imagination and emotion and wonder can happen in any story or in any word. 
And I feel like that's some of what I was operating with in the book, in Postcolonial Love Poem. One of those was to like riddle it with light. Like I imagined like just throwing it up in the air and like shooting it with the shotgun and just like it being full of these like holes of light. But I think even like to post-colonial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's also like, there's a lot of geology in the book. And, and that felt to me like a resistance toward land and property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live in the desert. There's a fault line nearby. The San Andreas runs all the way to Coachella right. Valley. And, but there, so a lot of what I did was take these kind of etymological or scientific or, or knowledge structures. And I tried to like, I tried to just be in them, not embody them, but imagine them as spaces I could walk around. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I, one criticism of the book is that the the language is difficult, hmm. which, like, really, like, as a native, that, like, really pisses me off, right? Because, like, I'm, a, I'm also a linguist. Right. And I also speak another language, two other languages, not English. Mm-hmm. But, like, a lot of... They've all been, like, white American women, um... I can like, like count them an on my objection hand. to the multilingualism of the book, or the way that you take on these official scripts? like who like who is the book for with with all of those like Latinit words or all of those <laughs> syllables? <I'm laughs> you sorry. know, and, and it's just like a it's an interesting thing. Like I, um, you know, because yeah, I I feel like uh, of all the you know people who I I know engage the book, it's. It's, I think, again, it's beyond the structure of language. Mm-hmm. And so that was, for me, something very intentional. Mm-hmm. Very, like, I very much wanted to kind of take those etymologies and show them for what they are, which is extreme violence, but right. also show that our capacity is beyond, like, what they're directing us to do and that mm-hmm. there is also a kind of tenderness or, God forbid, pleasure right. in within these that, that we have the capacity for and capability of. That, mm-hmm. that in some ways I wanted to show that, like from my own body being on the cover, that our bodies have arrived to a place that the bodies of the English language have not yet right. arrived at. And so that was part of the post-colonial thing that I was toying with a little bit. But. It also sort of refuses the imperative of English somehow, that English isn't just a language of instruction and how to be but that it is something other than that, that by deconstructing it somehow. Yeah, and it's also becoming because of us, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, that was something I was interested in in the book, is like the language beyond it, itself. Like mm-hmm. what what is its body that it doesn't yet know or doesn't yet have? Um, what will that be? And with so. that, this is a very not natural segue, but... <laughs> With that in mind, um, would you mind reading a little bit from The First Water is the Body, which is sort of at the center of the book? Yeah, not at all. I also drank too much water, so it's good. Uh, I, okay. Here. It's not an um, imperative. <laughs> just maybe a couple minutes of it? Yeah. So, okay. So you'll hear some words, but I translate all of them through, so eventually. Um, the First Water is the Body. The Colorado River is the most endangered river in the United States. Also, it is a part of my body. I carry a river. It is who I am. Hamakav. This is not metaphor. When a Mojave says, Inyech hamakavj idum, we are saying our name. 
We are telling a story of our existence. The river runs through the middle of my body. So far, I have said the word river in every stanza. I don't want to waste water. I must preserve the river in my body. In future stanzas, I will try to be more conservative. Hamakav is the true name of our people, given to us by our creator who loosed the river from the earth and built it into our living bodies. Translated into English, Hamakav means the river runs through the middle of our body the same way it runs through the middle of our land. This is a poor translation. Like all translations. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. In American imaginations, the logic of this image will lend itself to surrealism or magical realism. Americans prefer a magical red Indian or a shaman or a fake Indian in a red dress over a real native. Even a real native carrying the dangerous and heavy blues of a river in her body. What threatens white people is often dismissed as myth. I have never been true in America. America is my myth. Jacques Derrida says, every text remains in mourning until it is translated. When Mojave say the word for tears, we return to our word for river, as if our river were flowing from our eyes. A great weeping is how you might translate it, or a river of grief. But who is this translation for? And will they come to my language's four-night funeral to grieve what has been lost in my efforts at translation? When they have drunk dry my river, will they join the mourning procession across our bleached desert? The word for drought is different across many languages and lands. The ache of thirst, though, translates to all bodies along the same paths, the tongue, the throat, the kidneys. No matter what language you speak, no matter the color of your skin, we carry the river, its body of water, in our body. I do not mean to invoke the Drost effect. This is not a picture of a river within a picture of a river. I mean river as verb, a happening. It is moving within me right now. This is not juxtaposition. Body and water are not two unlike things. They are more than close together or side by side. They are same. Body, being, energy, prayer, current, motion, medicine. The body is beyond six senses, is sensual, an ecstatic state of energy always on the verge of praying or entering a river of movement. Energy is a moving river moving my moving body. In Mojave thinking, body and land are the same. The words are separated only by the letters E and A. Imat for body, Amat for land. In conversation, we often use a shortened form of each, Mat. Unless you know the context of a conversation, you might not know if we are speaking about our body or our land. You might not know which has been injured, which is remembering, which is alive, which was dreamed, which needs care. You might not know we mean both. If I say my river is disappearing, do I also mean my people are disappearing? How can I translate, not in words but in belief, that a river is a body as alive as you or I, that there can be no life without it? 
John Berger wrote, true translation is not a binary affair between two languages, but a triangular affair. The third point of the triangle being what lay behind the words of the original text before it was written. True translation demands a return to the pre-verbal. Between the English translation I offered and the urgency I felt typing hamakav in the lines above is not the point where this story ends or begins. We must go to the place before those two points. We must go to the third place that is the river. We must go to the point of the lance entering the earth and the river becoming the first body bursting from the earth's clay body into my sudden body. We must submerge, come under, beneath those once warm red waters now channeled blue and cool, the current's endless yards of emerald silk wrapping the body and moving it, swift enough to take life or give it. We must go until we smell the black root wet anchoring the river's mud banks. We must go beyond beyond, to a place where we have never been the center, where there is no center, beyond toward what does not need us, yet makes us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Gracias. And gracias for your generosity.